You're listening to the Palladium Park Podcast. This show and our website, palladiumpark.com, are designed to improve thinking and communication skills. Your hosts are the co-founders of Palladium Park, Jenna Shaw and Colin Wheeler. Together, they explore the vastness of intellectual curiosities in the world. Like and subscribe to this show to never miss a new episode. Although we are consultants, we are not consulting you through this podcast. All information shared in this podcast is intended to be informative and entertaining in nature. While we make every effort to make sure topics discussed on this podcast are accurate, they may be incomplete or changing in nature. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Palladian Park. Hello and welcome to the Palladium Park Podcast. Today we're going to talk about our December newsletter, which is basically a summary of all the year's newsletters, what we've posted on our blog, what we've been exploring this year, what we've read this year, and then what we've been thinking about this year. So we're excited to take a look and dive a little bit deeper. So I think with that, then Colin's going to take it away and talk a little bit about merch. Yeah, so just a little update from the front part of the newsletters. We've talked about merchandise that we have in the past, and we have expanded some of the offerings. So please do check those out. Wonderful. We can move into the blog posts if you want. Let's do it. Okay. So 2020, this overview is going to be pretty short compared to what we anticipate in the future since we started in October. So really only have a couple months of material here. But in 2020, we started out with a mental models post. So just an overview of different thinking tools. And then from there, we moved on to biases and just an overview of those as well. And then we did fallacies, an overview of argument tools and false logic. And then we also, so that, that was kind of laying the groundwork for, you know, the big three, mental models, biases, fallacies, kind of how you think and communicate. And so then once we laid that groundwork, we were kind of expanding into new territory and we have a blog post about misperceptions of mutual exclusivity. And this was really started from reading a book called Good Company by Arthur, Arthur Blank. We'll talk about that book a, in a little bit later, too. It's one of the books that we read in 2020. But it, it really got us thinking about how, how many times people think that things have to be one way or the other instead of finding a common path where maybe you can have the pros from two different sides and you can combine them and leverage them for your uh, your benefit or others. So that's kind of what that one is about. But overall, those are our blog posts in 2020. Yeah. And if you're interested in knowing more, since we talked very quickly about mental models, biases and fallacies, those we have dedicated episodes to going up podcast episodes about those three topics. And so feel free to check out our feed and you can see those episodes and check them out if you want to see that more in depth. So yeah, we're excited for more to come. As Colin said, we laid that groundwork with those three and then expanding more in our posts about a lot of different topics. And so 2021 will be a fun time to keep exploring. And with exploring, it's a perfect segue onto yeah did you plan that the sad thing is no it sounds so cheesy but it really (laughs) wasn't but it worked out quite well yeah it did so what we're currently exploring is we we called it learning who we are and so you know we we've spent our entire lives with ourselves and we will continue to spend the rest of our lives with ourselves and so we think that we should know ourselves better than anybody else and you know sometimes we do but sometimes we surprise ourselves we make decisions in a moment of high stress or high emotion that we look back on and we're like that didn't make any sense or how many times do you like as a teenager you think that you know a lot and then after you mature a little bit you look back at those years and you're like what was i thinking really this got us thinking and there's a, a book called consciousness in the brain and it's by stanislas dehane i hope i pronounced that correctly uh, but really fascinating book that skimmed through and excited to read the whole thing but there's a quote in here that i'll i'll read for you and it, it says learning who we are is a statistical deduction from observation having spent a lifetime with ourselves we reach a view of our own character knowledge and confidence that is only a bit more refined than our own view of other people's personalities. We remain largely ignorant of the actual unconscious determinants of our behavior, and therefore we cannot accurately predict what our behavior would be in certain circumstances beyond the safety zone of our past experiences. Our self is just a database that gets filled in through social experiences in the same format in which we attempt to understand our minds, and therefore 
it is just as likely to include glaring gaps, misunderstandings, and delusions. So I, I think that that was a really well put quote there that really kind of makes you introspective as to who we actually are, how we actually operate, how we think. And I mean, it, it's no secret that the brain is super complex and her entire body is super complex, but especially the brain. And so we included a link to a Nautilus article about just how complex the brain is. Each neuron in your head has, it's extremely complex and, and you yourself, you have 86 billion of them. And so it's, uh, I, I like the word that they use. They say that you are a whole cosmos of your inner life in there. Just kind of fascinating. It's not, not really answering any questions. It's just kind of exploring who we are, how we think, how we operate and reveling in the, the complexity and the mystery of ourselves. I think that's why I like it so much because what this kind of thing is, it's like it's expanding that because I feel like now, especially in a our internet age, there's such an identity of self. Like we really have strong labels and identities, which can be a good and a bad thing, right? It's very nuanced. There's, it's never one or the other. But I like this because it opens up the mystery of that. And it's a call to understanding like we're capable of a lot more than we think. And that also, you know, a lot of who we are is based on the experience that we're in. And it kind of talks about how we're just a, our brains are basically past experiences. It's all that repository of all those things. And so if things change drastically, so can you and you can do things you didn't realize. And it almost ties into that. I say it a lot, but the need to study history and people different from you, because it's that quote, again, another one I use a lot of like, I'm human, and therefore, nothing human can be alien to me. It's so important to realize that you might be capable of that. Maybe not, but it's good to open your brain. And this is a call to that of kind of opening up knowledge and understanding that um, these tight identities we have this thing idea that we really know ourselves isn't the case. And that's not necessary. It can seem scary, but it's a it's a wonderful thing, too, because it opens up a whole new world of possibilities and makes it much more complex and rich and exciting to kind of explore and see who you are as you keep progressing through the world. For sure. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of exciting with the idea that, you know, you are both nature and nurture and it, it's this combination and uh, it can kind of vary from day to day depending on uh, extenuating cir circumstances. And uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to play with the idea that there's a whole lot more to ourselves to learn about. Mm -hmm. um, than we already know. Yeah, we're more than we realize. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. point. Is there anything else you want to add on that? I think you encapsulated it quite brilliantly. Yeah, I think that that kind of covers it for, for that, if you want to move into a, a recap of 2020. Yeah, let's do it. So this is, we had a page just kind of summarizing what we've explored in 2020. This is just a few of many, but the first one we explored was walking and thinking and basically how interconnected that is. And we had articles um, in the Wall Street Journal, New Yorker and Farnham Street talking about this phenomena. This kind of hits close to our hearts. Colin and I both enjoy walking, especially out in nature. It helps us think better. And a lot of times when we're together and talking about things, we end up going for a walk and it helps stimulate the brain and just a lot of good things happening all at once when you're doing that. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that, Colin? Nope, that was great. Awesome. Yeah, it's not super revolutionary, but it's a good reminder, especially amid pandemic times too, to get outside and enjoy some fresh air. Cool. Well, the next one is facts are mortal. Basically, we explored the mortality of facts, more specifically the half-life properties of that facts have. And um, there was a great TEDx talk. Also, um, is it the same guy that's on the You're, You Are Not So Smart podcast? Yeah, so he, he uh, the, the TEDx guy, he was speaking at TEDx. He wrote a book that Farnham Street talked about. And then the You Are Not So Smart podcast, if I'm remembering correctly, they referenced his, his video, his book, and I think that they interviewed him as well. Cool. So yeah, they're all interconnected. Because he, he basically did it. Was it for uranium or something? Yeah, yeah. He was he was uh, talking about the similarities between well, just the principle of half life and so nuclear elements. And I, I believe that specifically he was talking about uranium. But yeah, in, anything that has nuclear decay. Yep. Which I think is what struck us is it's such a cool, vivid comparison to make or an analogy really of understanding that idea with facts have similar properties in that way. I think any great scientist is like that too. We found that to be true where the facts we have now, it's so easy to be like, I'm, I like facts and I stick to the facts, but any scientist knows like facts are always changing and it's some are, we feel pretty confident about, but they can still be refined. And so some might actually die. Like you talk about the half-life, some actually over time are completely wrong. This happens a lot in the medical field. Like a lot of times when they, they tell, don't they tell med students like half of what you learn here by the time you graduate will be obsolete or different 
somehow, which is mind-boggling because engineering's not quite that extreme, but is good because it's showing all of their progress towards saving more human lives. But it, it's a good reminder and to not marry too hard to facts or realize they're always going to change a little bit on you. And that's a good thing. That means progress is happening. From that, then another topic we talked about was empathy. Um, this basically ties in, well, first I referenced Brene Brown. There's a short video where she defines empathy and there's a nice little animation. So if you want to refresh her on the difference between sympathy and empathy, it's a great starting point. But what really got us going on this was an Invisibilia episode and it was all about empathy and I basically forced Colin to listen to it as well. And I think he enjoyed it though, but we... Uh, it was good. It was yeah. good. What I like about it and what we talk about a lot is it usually empathy is thought of as a good thing. And it's kind of a no-duh. Whether we actually execute it well is a different story, but it feels like one of those big buzzwords that most people would agree it's a good thing. And I like it because this muddied the waters of that. And it really got me thinking and challenged that idea. And I liked that because it basically talks about, yeah, it explored the duality of empathy and that there is a dark side that comes with empathy, that there is a cost to it. It can zap energy from you and it can, you know, take away some of that energy to fight the good fight and for things you think are important. And also though, it can be weaponized to keep us apart because it's so much easier to empathize with people that are like us. So then it doesn't leave us extra empathy to empathize with those that are different from us because that's more difficult to do. So a good encapsulation, see if you agree with this, Colin, that I think for both of us, it helped us have a more nuanced, deeper view of empathy, but we still came out on the side that it's a good thing and we should strive for it, but just understanding the, all the impacts of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Empathy is incredibly important for us to be able to connect well and deeply with others. But yeah, it, it was just making sure that we're not blindly accepting empathy as this knight in shining armor. It kind of like what we said, it, there's a duality to it. And so it, even though it is really good and it can be used for a lot of good, it is just a phenomenon that can be weaponized if one so desires. And it kind of mirrors that the very algorithmic world we live in, how so often with media now, it's just a vortex of all the, of your current views. And that's kind of almost how empathy is. And I'd never thought of it until this article or this, uh, excuse me, this podcast episode from Invisibilia, where they talk about how there's an excess of empathy, but for people that are like us already, which you could argue they don't need it as much as the other people. And so how that's, I think there's a quote in it. Oh, I wish I remembered it, but I loved it because he talks about how it's this sun. It's like this fire that we use to illuminate people like us and burn people that are different from us or something along those lines. And I love that it really illustrates the duality of that. And that's uh, included in our original newsletter post about empathy, if you want to check that out more in detail. Cool. I think we've kind of talked about that one in fullness. And so then the last one is the fringe, fringe effects of the pandemic. And Colin, do you want to take this one? You kind of wrote about sure. this one. Yeah. Um, so basically with, with it, I'm at this point when we're recording this, everyone's kind of tired of the pandemic. And so we're in, intimately familiar with all of the major effects that the pandemic is having on our lives. But really what we wanted to explore a little bit in this was the fringe effects. Um, so obviously there's first and second and third order effects. So, so what are the ones that are a little bit more out on the fringe and might not be as obvious? So the first one uh, was from the Wall Street Journal is about feeling relevant. And, and so is like a lot of people when they're getting furloughed and laid off from work, it, it's easy for them to feel like they aren't needed. And that feeling can be propagated a lot more when we are using terms like uh, essential workers, which obviously isn't the intended impact of using that term. But just like a lot of things, there's unintended consequences. So it's a, it a really good article about how some people aren't feeling relevant. And I think it's also exacerbated a little bit with technology and stuff. So some people are already feeling like they aren't relevant if their job is being pushed to uh, machines or robots or computers or whatever. And so this kind of compounds on that. So that was one fringe effect that we explored. Another one is we called nonverbal deprivation. And so there's lots of different types of forms of communication. And really, we're all super familiar with verbal language. But then there's also like reading body language. And then this one, what they're talking about in Aeon is touch and how important touch is. And in a time when we're, we're social distancing, and we're really only able to be close and um, physically touch very close family members or significant other or something like that, there there could be certain ramifications. And they, they talk about how the brain is this dynamic organ. And so there are various parts of the brain that are dedicated to touch and stuff. And so if you're depriving it of that, then those parts of the brain could potentially be restructured to um, work towards another sense or something like that. So that was interesting to read about. And then also the last one is uh, from the Financial Times. And it's 
talks about the impacts on our memory. A lot of interesting and good points on this one. The the one that kind of sticks out the most is how the author compares the mind forming memories and the pat how we experience the passage of time, similar to movies and what he calls diffs. And it's basically where you have like different camera changes, different angles, different zooming in, the pace of like if the camera's moving versus the objects or subjects that they're trying to get on film. And so the more dips that you have, the more different points that stand out, it keeps you engaged and, and you can really sense the movement. You, you can differentiate between one and another. And the fewer of those that you have, time feels like it is passing a lot slower and things start to meld together. You don't remember what day it is. If you're not driving to the office and you have like your Monday meetings or something, if you're just waking up, rolling out of bed and walking downstairs, you might not know if it's Tuesday or Thursday. So overall, all of those were really interesting. And like we said, fringe effects of the pandemic, something that might not be as obvious, but still can take a toll on us nonetheless. Perfect. So from there, do we want to start talking about what we read in 2020? Yep, that's great. I think that uh, we got these ordered alphabetically. So that means that you are first up with 1984. Yeah, I'll start with uh, 1984 by George Orwell, a classic dystopian novel. Basically, it looks at the consequences of totalitarianism, mass surveillance when you start to worship the state, and it really highlights the importance of truth and history and how who controls history kind of controls the world. And so... They say that a lot with in this, I think it's like whoever controls the past controls the present and whoever controls the present controls the future. And so it's a very prescient, great novel, stands the test of time. There's a reason people call things Orwellian because he pretty much nailed it. So it was a fun, I read it in high school and it was fun to re-explore it in 2020 and just get more depth from it and more knowledge from it. So thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, the next one's mine too, huh? So from there, going to another classic in a different way, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. And this is a classic feminist text written in, as I said, in Woolf's breathtaking prose. I think it's hard to, she just writes perfect sentences and is such a good thinker. She really marries great thinking with elegant, beautiful prose, which is not always the case. A lot of times it's one or the other. She basically tackles, I think these started as lectures and they put it into a book. So it's a, a short little book and it basically is talking about a study of like the cultural, educational, and economic issues in society that prevent women from realizing their creative potential. So a great read, nice and quick, but full of a lot of depth and good knowledge. The next one is Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. And this is not a small book by any means, but it was a good book, jam-packed with data. And so basically, it's uh, looking throughout the history of humankind and charting the decline of violence that uh, humanity has followed. So it, it is a really important book to, to kind of keep our lives in perspective with those of our ancestors. There has been some pushback in academic debate about certain certain data points and conclusions from this book. And we do highlight that in our November newsletter. So if you're interested in that and you haven't read it, uh, I do invite you to check that out because it is it is intellectually fascinating. The next book is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Who So Brene Brown is a professor and researcher at the University of Houston, and she studies shame and guilt uh, and vulnerability vulnerability. And so she's also an author and she has quite a few books. And so this is just one of them. But she she takes the title from Teddy Roosevelt and he had a speech about daring greatly and, and the man in the arena. And she talks about that a lot in this book and in her other works too. So this is a very good book about the usefulness of being vulnerable and, and how that helps us succeed in life and being able to connect with others. Definitely. I've read this one too. Not this year, but I like to know she just doesn't sugarcoat things. She says she's like, I'm like the worst vulnerability expert because I hate being vulnerable. She's from Texas. And so I love that she's like, this blows. Because if she was some like pious or sanctimonious person, like it's like, it's fun to hear her because she, I find myself being like, yes, when she says that of like, it sucks. It's important, but I kind of hate it. And it's a good entry point for that. And with the man in the arena quote, which is a great quote from Teddy Roosevelt, as you said, I love how she talks about it's a great image she takes from that of like, when you're in the arena being vulnerable daring greatly like you're going to get your ass kicked sometimes and I love that she points that out of like it's worthwhile but it's it's hard and you're going to need people to pull you up and also with facing criticism that you should only listen to people that are in the arena too if you're not willing to get your ass kicked with me I don't want your feedback and that's the one part of that book that I mean there was multiple but that part really stood out and I, it's really I, I've taken it into my life or at least tried to Cool. So the next one is The Death of Ivan Illich by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, and this is a classic novella. It's not super long, but it's basically about one man's journey to death. So he finds out one day that he's dying and then starts to reflect upon his own life and what meaning it had. And it's a great reflection on that and realizing like what was the point of it all and seeing the, you know, how trivial life can be and how a lot of the relationships he had 
weren't as deep as he thought when he was dying and had nothing to offer them to see people's true colors and how they basically used his death to keep to move themselves forward and all these different things so a lot of the staple we get so busy and every what I really took from it is we get so busy in everyday life and things and this really helps dismantle like we should stop and examine the life because when you're examining your life when you're dying it's a little bit late at that point it kind of comes to the it's quite tragic in that way but illuminating that come to the conclusion of like, what was it all for? It wasn't really for anything. And so it's a good way of learning from the wisdom of others, of seeing that and hopefully allowing yourself to come to that realization sooner. And if there are things you need to change in your life, it's the time is now to do that. But because it's done in a novel way and it's with Tolstoy, who's brilliant at writing, it's a great accessible way to do that. It's not beating you over the head with it, but it illustrates it quite well. Yeah, the next book is called Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. Kind of a timely read. Unfortunately, Tony passed away probably close to a month ago now. He was only in his 40s. He was the CEO of Zappos.com. So saddened to hear hear that, but uh, this is a, a really good book. And it, Tony writes this himself about himself. It's autobiographical. It's a business book about what is the purpose of business. And it really charts the evolution of his understanding and pursuit of business from when he was a kid. It was all about making money, getting rich. And that started to evolve after he started making money and realizing he realized that it, you know, it wasn't as fulfilling as he thought it was going to be. And he started to realize how connecting with other people and making them feel good was really the most important thing. And so that's that's kind of the trajectory that this book takes. And uh, it, it is a uh, profoundly important book, especially for people in business on, on focusing what is the most important thing and how to build a really, really strong company culture and resilient company. Zappos com ended up selling to Amazon. Um, I forget the year. It's been a while though, for over a billion dollars. So it clearly worked for him, and he had some other companies that he sold for to great success too. So it's a proven method. Good book, and uh, saddened to hear that Tony passed away at such a young age. The next book is also a business book and mentioned it briefly earlier in the podcast. It's called Good Company by Arthur Blank. Arthur Blank is one of the co-founders of the Home Depot, and he is the owner of the Atlanta Falcons MLS soccer team, Atlanta United. He has a hospitality business. He's a big time philanthropist and he has some other business ventures as well. So you can definitely say he's a very successful business person. And this is a really, really good book. And it's a newer book too. It came out in October, I believe. And really what Arthur is doing in this book is he's sharing his adventures in business. It kind of, he's illuminating his life and what was important to him. And he's promoting good business where all stakeholders can benefit. He's not really interested in the short game. It's all about long-term success and formidability. So really good book and honestly refreshing too with uh, a lot of what you hear from. He is a billionaire. So a lot from what you hear about certain billionaires and their actions and stuff, Arthur is at least from this book and what I know about him, he's, he's a beacon of good. Then the next one is another book that I read. It's uh, The Great Mental Models by Shane Parrish. Uh, Shane is a Canadian. Uh, he founded Farnham Street, which is a really, really fascinating website that really kind of helps people improve thinking. I think that they they call it, uh, they, they help people figure out the best of what other people have already learned. And so this book is just an overview of a bunch of different types of mental models. A lot of the mental models that they cover in this book actually are also in our first blog post too. So there's some overlap there. Shane's a really good writer too. So good book to, to read. It's thorough. So the next one's mine, The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I read volume one, I'm working on volume two, and there's a third one as well, but there's also an abridged version. And I, before he died, he sanctioned that abridged version and was all for it so people could read it. So if you're looking for a shorter distillation, there is that version of it. But it's basically, and it says it on the title, an experimental literary investigation into life in the Soviet forced labor camps. So the gulags were the system of forced labor and imprisonment of the Russian people. And it, the archipelago were basically islands that the system worked on. And so he himself was in the part of the gulag for at least 10 years it maybe it was longer but he was part of it for a long time and so it's partially his own story but he also got a ton of stories from other people's experience and compiled it all and basically this book helped bring down the USSR so he had to kind of carry this book away himself and pass it around to people to keep it safe and they like read it the night of and so yeah really it shows that one man can really change the world so it's quite a harrowing read it's not easy by any means but it's full of a lot of hard-won wisdom and lessons and one of the biggest quotes that sticks with me that he comes to the conclusion of 
from these books is basically saying the line between good and evil runs between each human heart and understanding like valuing of the individual. So I say that a lot. So it's basically understanding that what they didn't do is value the individual and understand that each person has the capability because he saw the worst of humanity and the best of humanity in the camps. Wonderful, difficult, great read. Yeah, and kind of completely different from that is the next book, which is a very short, simple, pithy, easy read. We contain multitudes, Colin. We read a lot of different types. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, you're fine. Well, that's that's what it's all about. We don't want to read the same stuff. Yeah. But yeah, so it's by Tom Rath. It's called It's Not About You. And it kind of looks like a life self-help book, but it's not, uh, well, it kind of might maybe fall a little bit into that category, but not really. Tom Rath, he used to be an executive at Gallup, Inc. His, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, is his grandfather who helped form Gallup. His grandfather had a consulting business and they bought Gallup, but they changed their name to Gallup, even though they were the acquirers. So anyways, Tom has worked with executives all over the world from small to huge companies and all about improving team performance and stuff like that. He, he's one of the people who developed the Gallup strength, find, strength Finders test. So basically, this book is all about how you can better your life by doing your best for others. And it's really turning your introspection and in, in being self-absorbed and thinking that you are the hero in your own story instead thinking about others and so he has a quote in there life is not about you it's about what you do for others and really that is what the book is in a nutshell so from there we're going to go to one of my books man's search for meaning by victor frankel victor frankel was um he survived the concentration camps but he was a psychologist so he had interesting insight into it. And so this whole book is basically chronicling his time in the Nazi concentration camps and, you know, his quest among others to find meaning in life there. And so it's very thoughtful and a wonderful book about life. And a lot of times the extremes of, you know, you would never wish that upon anyone, but the extremes of the concentration camps brought about a lot of hard-won wisdom and it can illuminate, really get to the heart of the matter of what it means to be alive and the meaning of that. And so he very eloquently describes that. There's a lot of very famous quotes from this book that have stood the test of time and still do. And so it's wonderful because it is quite short and easy to read, but very profound. And it's one of those books I would recommend everyone should read. It has something for everybody. And yeah, everyone should read it, I believe. And then from there, the next book is also Mind Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which Colin has also read. And this is another timeless one that everyone could benefit from. It's basically meditations from one of Rome's greatest emperors. It's really stood the test of time. And it's him just thinking about life and going through his different meditations on life and writing them down in a quite concise way. And it really, I mean, it's been a long time and people still read it and get so much from it. So it really shows how timeless it is. So yeah, a lot of stoic wisdom with that. Also a good tip tip for this too is making sure you, if you have difficulties, especially if you go to like a library, is knowing what translation to get. I think mine is Gregory Hayes is the new, a newer translation helps because it's more modernized. So if you really struggle, if you look at the translation you have, so if you have a really old one, that can cause it to have be much less accessible. So that's a good tip. Anytime you're getting something that's translated, especially if it's quite old, make sure to look up best translations and especially if you're looking for a more modern take. Do you have anything to add since you've read that one as well? Yeah, it was, it was a really good book. It, it I think it's always fascinating since he wrote it himself and he was one of the most powerful people in the world at the time, just to see everything that he was thinking and experiencing and how he was planning to handle it all. And yeah, I think it kind of shows two things. One is, you know, even though he was uh, emperor and had the command of thousands and thousands of men and just crazy political influence and stuff just showing how human he is too and you know he, he had a lot of uncertainty a lot of doubt a lot of hardship that he had to overcome and then also trying to not grow accustomed to the the luxuries of life and trying to be more down to earth and stable if you will yeah yeah super fascinating book and yeah good window into the past and the mind of a highly influential person and I think reading stuff like that too, you realize how universal humanity is, right? Like life was very different back then, but most of what he says, it's still so relevant now. And you start to realize it's like, oh yeah, there's a lot more. We like to see the differences through time, but there, this thing called humanity is quite similar in that way. And it, there's almost a connect. You feel, I feel like a nice connectedness when you read something that old and it still hits home. And often we like to paint this picture of the perfect leader and this, they have their armor on and nothing can penetrate them and every, they don't feel fear and there's no doubt and all these things. And it's like, no, that's, we're all, we talk a lot about expectations, right? Setting up good expectations. It's like, no, it's not that you aren't fearful or that you don't have doubts. It's like, but as you keep progressing through life and standing up more, you realize you're stronger than you thought and you can handle it more than you thought. Because if you don't expect to feel fear 
or doubt, when you do, it can be crippling and it can be awful. When you know to expect it, you just go, such is life. And that's, he says that a lot. That's kind of his motto a lot. And that is like, such is life. Let's go with the flow and keep moving forward the best we can. So the next one actually is mine. Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave by Frederick Douglass. And this is a classic that's been on my list for a long time. Can't believe I hadn't read it before now, but it's wonderful. It's quite a short book and it's a wonderful narrative that he wrote himself and it's so compelling and it just systematically dismantles the institution of slavery. And it is wonderful and really paints that. But you already know that, but he just, he does a beautiful argument for that and adds a real humanity to it and the perfect balance of logic and emotions to illustrate how wrong it was. And so we talked about it when I first read it of understanding he went through so much risk and strife just to be able to learn to read and then to be able to read and how that's basically his enlightenment and how he still was forced into he was still stuck in slavery while he did that and so he kind of talks about slavery as a numbing effect and you just become numb to it and so when he became conscious it was almost he almost wished he hadn't because it was so difficult to still be in bondage but to know better to have that skill set. And that's why slave owners were so scared of people reading, but it really put into perspective now, right, where we complain so often and so many people don't want to go to school or don't want to learn. And it puts in a fresh perspective of, wow, what a gift that is and how we've had access to it for so long that it's so easy to take that for granted. Overall, great book. You see what the hype's all about when you read it. Well worth the hype. The next book is called On Grand Strategy, and this is by John Lewis Gaddis. He is a professor at Yale, and uh, one of the classes that he teaches is actually about strategy. And so this book is kind of an encapsulation of that coursework. And so it, it's, a, it's a really fascinating book. It is extremely broad in what it's covering, from like Xerxes and the Spartans to the strategy and political games and war of ancient Greece to Rome, Alexander the Great, the American Revolution, uh, the American Civil War, various wars throughout the years of European history. And so super, super fascinating. And it covers both successes and shortfalls too. So it's not only looking at the winners throughout history, not just the survivorship bias. It's also looking at those who have tried and failed too. Overall, super, super fascinating book and kind of reframes, if you will, from a, a, a different scale, all the different types of strategy that there are. We had a lot of great talks about this book when you read it too. I haven't read it, but you read me some passages and yeah, it facilitated a lot of great discussion. So I enjoyed vicariously reading it kind of vicariously through you. Yep, it was a good one. Well, from there, next one is 100 Years of Solitude by Gar Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, and this is a gorgeous layered story of magical realism following a family in their town. So it's basically, is it like, I'm going to forget now the exact, but I think it's like seven generations maybe. And it's like 107 years maybe of this family in this town. And yeah, I think in their newsletter I wrote, it's a wonderful representation of humanity in all its forms. That's exactly it. It's it's so dense, but in a, in the best way. It's so full, chock full of all different types of people and a lot of great insight. And the prose is beautiful in the way it does it. And so it's just, you can see why it won the Nobel Prize. It's so good. And it's one of those books I could see. I think some people do go back and read it quite often. And there's so much to take from it that it would well be worth a second read. And it does magical realism perfectly where with that, it kind of reminds me of sci-fi where the best ones do it where humanity is at the center of it and so they use it to like that heightened sense of reality to that your advantage to highlight things about humanity so not getting distracted by the sci-fi or the magical realism elements but using those to help illuminate what makes us all connected and human and it's wonderful and one that's a classic and been on my list for a long time and again lived up to the hype thoroughly enjoyed it but yeah it's a long one and quite dense but if you like fiction it's well worth the time also i'm sure now as we talk about which books are ours people can clearly see our proclivities of naturally our reading preferences <laughs> maybe a little bit just, just a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah okay with that the last four are mine so i will go through these the order of time by carlo rovelli is first up and carlo rovelli he's, he's an italian theoretical physicist but you wouldn't really know that he's a physicist if you just read his writing he's an incredibly good writer with beautiful prose and so in this book he kind of really warps our understanding of time what the universe is and how we experience that passage of time in our lives and he brings a lot of really good things to the forefront. Some of them are understood physics. So just what is time and what is time influenced by, like velocity and mass. And then he also dives into the realm of theory, where this hasn't been proved yet, but they're working on it in various theories. He tries to explain the theories that he believes in and then the theories that he's going up against that he doesn't believe is correct, which being able to do both is supremely important in, in uh, showcasing your understanding of it. And then he also talks about more intangible things, which you might be saying, what, what's more intangible than time, which to 
touche. But what I what I mean is more like what is reality? What is it that we are experiencing? Um, is life made up of things or events? What and if it's both, which is more important? So he he dives into that and and covers like relationships and and love and stuff like that. So holistically, very very good book. I uh, it's not a very long book, but I couldn't put it down. I read it in probably it was less than two days for sure. So very good book. Highly recommend. The next book is called The Ride of a Lifetime. It's by Bob Iger, who is the former CEO of Walt Disney Company. He is the current chairman of Walt Disney Company, but former CEO. And in this book, it's uh, really just follows him throughout his life, an autobiography. And in it, he spends a lot of time talking about uh, the evolution of entertainment and how, as a leader, he worked to make decisions, which is really, really important. He talks a lot about the, the deal that he had with Steve Jobs for uh, when Disney was acquiring Pixar. He talks about opening up new amusement parks overseas and working with foreign governments. He talks about tragedy and how he dealt with that, specifically the alligator in at their Florida park who ate a child. And so it, it's a really good book about in business and especially as an executive at such a large international company like that all of the things that you have to do not just from like business operations standpoint but also as like a prominent figure in the media and somebody who has significant influence into the way that the global economy functions so really really fascinating book the next one is called, I won't say the full title, it's The Subtle Art of Not Giving AF by Mark Manson. So he does this on purpose. It's obviously a very catchy title, but it's a little bit misleading, at least in my viewpoint. Um, it's not really teaching you to not care about anything, but instead it's uh, like refocusing you on what's important to care about. And it's super easy to get misdirected in life as to what's most important, like seeking attention or certain financial goals or stuff like that, instead of focusing on things that you can't control and the relationships in your life and stuff like that. So really good book for recalibration for what's important. And then the last book is by Jay Heinrichs and it is called Thank You for Arguing. Jay Heinrichs is, I describe him as a wordsmith. He, he's a rhetorical genius. Really, he so he's a consultant for a lot of different large companies and he helps them frame their messages for both sales like marketing, but then also if, if they're in hot water, how to how to communicate that with the rest of the world. So he knows all the tips and tricks for argument persuasion and this book here it's it's kind of like a handbook for all of his all of his tips and tricks that he knows for the work that he does and jenna and i had a lot of conversations about it mm -hmm. lots of great conversations mm -hmm. so jenna if you had to pick do you pick one or two that were your favorites Ooh, that's a hard one let me think i'm scrolling back through I never, I can't say just a favorite, but Man's Search for Meaning really hit me. It's a good recalibration one. And just, yeah, like I said, it's one of those, there's very few books I read that I'm like, everyone needs to read this book. And that is definitely one. Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass really stuck out. Especially, I think I broke it down in our news, one of our newsletters. And that question that really stood out as he talks about it, everything worth having in life is figuring out like what's worth struggling for. The struggle is imminent. And it's kind of similar to earlier when we we're talking about expectations of just understanding it's part of life. Part of life is the struggle of it. And really that call to action of like what is worth struggling for and I really that hit me quite hard and I really liked that idea so do you have any favorites of yours or ones you liked a lot yeah so I'm I'm gonna have to break my own rule I said one or two and I'm gonna have to go with three. Oh, how dare you I know so on grand strategy was phenomenal the order of time was super super good and thank you for arguing all different in their own sense I guess grand strategy and thank you for arguing are, can be kind of similar with just the strategy portion of both of those but all of those were hands down my favorites nice just for our talking we those are the ones we talked about a bunch so those don't surprise me as much and for me to a room of one's own what stuck out besides her if you've never read Virginia Woolf just read her for her prose like it's just breathtaking and she writes perfect sentences I don't know how else to describe it I guess if you don't enjoy that don't but man highly recommend but with that she talks about the androgynous mind and how a lot of creative people and especially genius people are highly skilled it doesn't even have to necessarily be genius I don't think but highly skilled people um, self-actualized people have this quality of an androgyny of mind and I 
I really like that because I've, I've noticed that in my own life and I thought it was the perfect kind of word choice for it. And it really stuck out with me of understanding kind of archetypally the masculine and feminine and not getting distracted by the gender side of it, but actually that we all have the duality of life, like we all have a right and left hemisphere, good and bad. And so we all inhabit the masculine and feminine in different ways. And so I thought she very eloquently described a phenomenon I, I've noticed but didn't have the words for. A lot of my favorite people are that way too, where they have a, a mixture of both and see the value of masculine and feminine traits, that they work together. It's how new life is created or new ideas or anything like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so before we move on to the next portion, I just want to remind people that, so this is just our, our 2020 reading list. And if you are interested in seeing what we read in 2019 and 2018, um, those are on our website, our reading list there. And, and uh, we'll continue to add to that next year. Good reminder. Okay, should we move into the the thinking part? Yeah, what are we thinking, Colin? We're thinking about thinking. <laughs> it's the burden of knowledge and innovation. There are a few articles that we're reading that kind of really caught our attention. And so the first one, it's an article in the American Economic Association, which before you start snoring, it is more interesting than than the sound of the source, <laughs> I promise. But <laughs> So it, it poses the question, are new ideas becoming harder to find as our knowledge as a species continues to grow? And so in that article, the, the authors have evidence from what they, they say, direct quote, various industries, products, and firms showing that research effort is rising substantially while research productivity is sharply declining. And so kind of reading more about this, there was a, a Substack article that was really good. We have linked to it in the newsletter. And so it's, it's delving into the idea that things are getting harder to find. And the author is Matt Clancy, and he says... Quote, assume invention is the application of knowledge to solve problems, whether in science or technology. As more problems are solved, we require additional knowledge to solve the ones that remain or to improve on the existing solutions. This wouldn't be a problem except for the fact that people die and take their knowledge with them. Meanwhile, babies are inconveniently born without any knowledge. So each generation needs to acquire knowledge anew, slowly and arduously, over decades of schooling. But since the knowledge necessary to push the frontier keeps growing, the amount of knowledge each generation must learn gets larger. The lengthening, restraining cycle slows down invention. So I think he put that really well and kind of, kind of uh, funny too. Babies are inconveniently born without any knowledge. And so that kind of got us thinking about, you know, if we do have this burden of knowledge and innovation, what what does that mean? If you have to learn more in order to continuously push that frontier out, what, what ramifications happens because of that? And what incentives does that create too? First off, it, it got us thinking about the idea of, you know, specializing versus generalizing, the specialist versus the generalist, somebody who knows a little bit of everything versus somebody who knows nothing about most things, but everything about one thing. And so kind of thinking that we, we were talking about how, you know, in itself, specialization isn't a bad thing. That's kind of how humanity has progressed to where it is. It's our ability to specialize in something and then we can collaborate with others who can provide goods or services that we can't provide for ourselves. If we all had to do the same exact thing for our lives, then we, we would be spread much more thin and wouldn't be able to dedicate the time needed to progress in various fields. But then, so that got us thinking also, if that's good for the species. Is it kind of like the idea of evolution where whatever happens is good for the species, not necessarily the individual? And, you know, I, we think that there's probably a lot of truth to that. So the examples that we used are people in the energy sector, specifically coal, and how that's just been decimated lately with the transition to more renewable sources of energy. So a lot of the, the coal workers and stuff feel left behind because they're not needed as much. A lot less coal is being mined as opposed to what was in the past. And part of that is technical, technological advances as well, too. But so humanity, society as a whole, if we're moving towards more renewable sources and assuming all else being equal, if, if those sources can be reliable and ever producing and easily stored, then and that's a good thing for society for us to move to the, those different energy sources and be more diversified. But it's bad for the individuals 
who were the coal producers. Um, so that's just one example. And uh, there's there's surely many, many others. But kind of the conclusion that I came to on this, you know, it's kind of what we say all the time. It's the balance of all things where, yeah, it's good to specialize and you need to have certain specialties. But if that is the only thing that you can do, that fragilizes you. You are in a fragile position where you are dependent upon your specialty being the end all and it will always be there for you, which is not a game that I would want to play. So in the newsletter, I said, in the end, it's not survival of the fittest. It's survival of the specialists who are also adaptable. And so if you can balance specialization with generalization, then you are putting yourself in the driver's seat for, for success. And uh, it kind of also moves you away from being fragile to definitely in the realm of robust and maybe even anti-fragile, kind of talking about Nassim Taleb's definition of anti-fragile, where if something bad happens, you are benefited from it. So kind of moves you away from one extreme and gets you more into the middle where you can withstand certain shocks to the system. Now, with this, what, not surprising, the devil's advocate in me, right? The kind of needling. What this brings awake in me is something I've been thinking about a lot is something like this makes us contend with, well, what are we progressing towards? Because a lot of times now it feels like we're progressing for progress sake to say we've moved forward and forgetting, which it kind of says in there, it's like, the whole point about knowledge and about innovation is like it's supposed to solve problems. And it's almost like we flipped that script that we're in this prison and we have to. We've forgotten that, right? Because it's easy, the narrative, and part of it is true in our current system, and maybe our system needs to change. A lot of people would say it does, um, or just be refined. I'm not saying blow the whole thing up by any means, but I'm saying that it hurts the individual, like coal miners being left behind. But if you, and it's maybe one of the shortcomings, there's a lot of wonderful things and shortcomings of capitalism, but of saying that. Well, we're finding better things that are better for the environment, so we no longer need this area. And not to wipe out people entirely, right? But it's like, yeah, when you, like you kind of said, you're highly generalized there, so that causes that issue. But it's, we're forgetting that in other areas too, where technology comes in and replace, replaces people, we're framing that as it's catastrophic. But that also means like we don't have to do as much manual hard labor and it allows us for more time. That's not always a good thing, but it can be. We're not even asking the question of, oh, we have all this technology, so maybe that means more people can go into research because we don't need to do the hard labor anymore, all these things. But it seems like it's so presented in one narrative and it's all bad or all this. But it, I think it's, it's hitting at this issue we're not really thinking about because we've always done it this way. It's like, well, if it is requiring so much more time and energy, is it worth it? And I'm not saying I have the answer for that, but it's worthy of a discussion, right, of having a debate among many different areas and different people to decide because as we move forward, it's like, is it worth it? And what, what are our real biggest problems? And maybe we should then be more strategic in what we're pursuing knowledge in, like you say. So yeah, and that idea too of sure, we can you can become hyper specific, like specialized in that area. But I don't think humans thrive that way. It's not you need a mixture of generalization. Otherwise, you don't. It's kind of the shame of the humanities going away so much is like, that was a foundation of a common language that allowed people to communicate, having enough of a foundation that you can communicate effectively. It's good to have some specialization, like you say, but when you erode that, it makes it much more difficult across lines to talk to people that are different from you. So that's another area of this where you, and it plays into the conclusion you came to at the end of you need balance of all things, you need a mixture of both, because if you completely go for efficiency's sake and all for specialization, you know, that's great, but that makes us robots in life. At that point, I think most people agree, like, life isn't worth living. At that point, it might be better for the species, but individuals, it's to their peril and it's to their detriment. So yeah, a good thought-provoking one. Yeah, got a little, little deep on that one. Yeah, hits at the heart of a lot of deep, difficult questions. All right, you want to, since I talked a lot about that one, you want to do our summary? Yeah, so starting at one of our favorite ones, our favorite thoughts in 2020 was people flying to nowhere, literally. As I said before, Colin sent this to me, and it seemed like a clickbaity title. And I was like, that can't be what I think it is. And I clicked on it, and it absolutely was. So it, it basically is with travel restrictions, hampering airlines, they had to get creative and started offering flights to nowhere. So some of them did it. Most of them was, I think, in Asian countries and in um, Australia and that area especially areas that weren't quite as affected as heavily as like the United States and some other European countries. But they basically offered flights to nowhere. A lot of times they would, so you could see outside, get the experience of flying. Sometimes a lot of them had like gourmet chefs or meals on board as well. So flyers could dine, drink and sightsee. And so this is creative and a fun way to keep their business going. But also on our first reading of this too, it 
hits you that it's so bad for the environment. There's a lot of unnecessary pollution. And especially we have to contend with pollution for what we call necessary trips or actually going somewhere for a purpose, whether it's worth it or not. But then especially this where you're literally just going for a joyride, it is difficult. So we we really looked into deeper than just that, some of the pros of keeping jobs for airline employees and pros and cons and made it a nice gray area of what this means and how it reflects society. So another thought that we had and that was in our last newsletter was how to deal with bullies. And a lot of that came from Thank You for Arguing book that we recently just talked about in our uh, overview of books for 2020. And so, yeah, it really covered how to deal with difficult people and it reframes how you think about them too. So if you're if you're dealing with a, a bully, first off, you have to identify who is your target audience. Is it the bully himself or herself? Or are there other people around like at a Thanksgiving dinner or something, which I think is what we use as an example in that one. And so there's a few different ways to do that. You're using uh, rhetorical devices. And so the first one is, is false endearment. You're pretending to be interested. And I think we came to the conclusion that, you know, that's uh, that might be able to work in some situations, but it's probably difficult to pull off. And if you don't do it quite rightly, you, you can come across is like immature or trite. So the second option is intense curiosity where you're asking questions. You're really kind of moving the burden onto the bully to explain their reasoning, their thought process. And if they don't really have one, it can make them reconsider maybe, but even so they might not show it. But really when people know more about a subject, and that's when they, they start to moderate their views a little bit. Probably more importantly, and especially more importantly, if your audience is other people like sitting around a table and you're asking these questions to the bully and they aren't able to answer or provide a good answer, then it really, you're bringing the rest of your audience over to your side by showing that, hey, this person with their claims, they aren't, they haven't been well thought out. They're, they're lacking a lot of detail and really not worthy of our consideration. So that's kind of, it's kind of the dealing with bullies in a nutshell. So the way that Jay Heinrich says in the book is that your, your main strategy shouldn't be not to strike back, but to co-opt the bully's opinion. Or if the bully is uncooptable, the onlookers. This is true whether the bully is live or online. Obviously, much more difficult online than in person, but the, the premise still remains true. And hearing you talk about this, because we've talked about that book a lot, what just came to me, which I hadn't thought of before, which I really like, is and why it's, I think, effective is in good writing, especially fiction, but in any writing, they say, show, don't tell. And it's a good axiom for life, too, and it applies everywhere. And that's exactly what this is doing, is you could say, this guy's an asshole, or girl, either way. But this person's an asshole, they're a bully, this and that. And sure, but that's not as compelling as... Because part of what a bully usually wants is to get a rise out of you anyways. But what's much more compelling is if you have intense and curiosity, you keep a cool head and you are illustrating either through asking further probing questions to show that their logic is faulty, they don't have good logic at all, or if they get angry or upset, you're literally showing people, <clears throat> letting them do the work for you to show like this guy's not, act this guy's acting like an asshole or is doesn't have a good argument or is being a bully. And it's such a brilliant strategy because they do the heavy lifting and it's so much more compelling and than you having to form the words and do all of that. And so I hadn't made that exact connection before, but I think that's exactly hitting at that and why it works so well. Yeah, definitely. You're, you're keeping the burden on them, not on you. Yeah. It's a two birds, one stone too, because bullies love a reaction and people that often get bullied can't help but give that reaction. And so intense and curiosity gets you focused in that area instead of letting your emotions and other things run away with you. So it kind of does that and can help dismantle the argument. So Yep. Well, great. So with that, I think that wraps up our December summary of 2020 newsletter. I think I can say for both of us, thank you so much for a wonderful few first months. And we're excited for our first full year in 2021 and hope you're along for the ride as we keep posting more podcast episodes, more blog posts and everything else. So as always, you can go to palladiumpark.com to find more about us, our consulting services, our learning services, everything from our blog and sign up for our newsletter there and everything in between. So thank you so much for a wonderful year and we'll see you in 2021.